Now, they thought they knew his father. They thought Joseph was his father. Joseph was not his father. Joseph was his legal guardian, what we might call his stepfather, but he was not his biological father. He's not the son of Joseph. He is the son of God. And so when he describes his birth, he describes it with the terms that he came down out of heaven. That's the message of Christmas. Forget this ho, 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 jingle bell stuff. The message of Christmas is that God became a man. You could take this account and you could parallel it to the other passages in the Bible that speak of the virgin birth. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part two of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, The Bread of Life Discourse, Part 2. We have been studying the Bread of Life Discourse found in the book of John, chapter 6. In this chapter, which is the longest in the book of John, we find Jesus performing another miracle with a message. The miracle, the feeding of the 5,000 with just five barley loaves and two fish. And the day after the message being that Jesus is the eternal bread of life. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he continues in verse 48, where Jesus affirms that he is the bread of life. Five times in this portion of scripture, he will say he came down from heaven, but they will not accept it. And so they grumble. Now it's kind of interesting because there's a progression here. Chapter opens, there's enthusiasm, they're seeking him because of the signs they saw. Nothing wrong with that. Nicodemus sought the Lord Jesus. He said, we know you come from God. No one can do the signs that you do unless God were with him. But their signs turn into skepticism and unbelief, and they begin to grumble, and they're going to move from grumbling to arguing among one another, and eventually they're going to be forced to make a decision, and most of them will abandon him. We'll actually see three kinds of decisions. But what they grumble about principally is he said, I am the bread of life, that comes down out of heaven. He was making and equating himself with God, as we'll see by the response that they give. They understood what he was saying. Hey, you talk to people today, and very often it will elicit the same response. Yesterday I was on the phone with a gentleman, speaking with him, and it came down to this. I said, well, the question that you have to decide is who is Christ? Who is he? Well, this gentleman thought he was just a man, another good teacher, I said, he didn't leave open that possibility for you. Of course, for him to claim to be God and know that he was not, you'd have to say he was a deceiver and certainly not a good man. You'd have to say he was evil because as he will later claim in this gospel, people will die because they will believe that he's Lord. It's hard to put a precise number on it, but most missiologists agree it's in the hundreds of millions in fact, in the last century alone, more people died for the cause of Jesus Christ than in the previous 19 centuries. For Jesus Christ, knowing the implications that he would say that he is Lord, knowing those implications and lying about it anyway, you cannot say he's a good man because he would have the blood of 100, uh, 300 plus million people on his hands. A lot of folks. Or, of course, the second possibility is that he was a kook. He was deranged, or he is who he claimed to be, his deity. But when you talk to people about Jesus being Lord, oh, now, now you're on a different plane. You see, because if he's God, if he's the creator, then everything he ever said is true. 
And what you do with the Lord is going to determine what God does with you. Because his claims are so narrow. I'm not simply a way, but I am the only way to the Father. There's salvation in no one else. And so people will grumble. Now, interestingly, this word for grumble is the same word. And there's a number of words in the Greek New Testament that could be translated grumble. But God the Holy Spirit uses the same word Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 10 to describe what the Jews did when they grumbled over the manna that God supplied. They're grumbling again over a different kind of bread, over the living bread that claims to come down from heaven. So here's the issue at hand. Where did he come from? They could not conceive that he came down from heaven. And so, verse 42, they were saying, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down out of heaven? They're saying, we know who his parents are. Joseph is his father. Mary is his mother. So how can he say he came down from heaven? They're saying, we know who your parents are. So what right do you have to claim to be nobler than us to have divine origin? They thought they knew the Lord Jesus. They thought they knew his father and their mother, his mother. And so they were incensed that he would put himself on the same level as God. But they didn't really know him. In fact, he will say over and over and over again, you don't know me. Now, they thought they knew his father. They thought Joseph was his father. Joseph was not his father. Joseph was his legal guardian, what we might call his stepfather, but he was not his biological father. He's not the son of Joseph. He is the son of God. And so when he describes his birth, he describes it with the terms that he came down out of heaven. That's the message of Christmas. Forget this ho, 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 jingle bell stuff. The message of Christmas is that God became a man. You could take this account and you could parallel it to the other passages in the Bible that speak of the virgin birth. And so these Jews erroneously identified Joseph as the father, and that was the basis for their grumbling. Now, that's the reaction. They grumbled. Secondly, I want you to notice the rebuke. Look, if you will, at verse 43. Jesus answered and said to them, do not grumble among yourselves. Now, he gives us some insights here as to why people sometimes do not understand the things of God. Well, sometimes, you know, people just grumble among themselves. They talk among themselves. And it's kind of pulled ignorance. You know, what's your opinion? What do you think? In fact, as we move further through this, this sermon, they're going to do that very thing. They're going to go back and forth, and they're going to argue among themselves over their varying opinions. And of course, if you don't have a plumb line, if you don't have some kind of way to discern what's true, you'll get into all kinds of arguments. Because who's to say, my opinion is better than your opinion? But if God has spoken and he has not stuttered, and he has in Holy Scripture, then we have a plumb line by which we can discern what's right and what's wrong. And so he explains why they're ignorant. Look at verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws me, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's the connection between verses 43 and 44. The reason they are in grumbling unbelief is because no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him, and God is not drawing these people. Now, if you were here last week, we saw that God desires to draw all men to himself, but not all men will be drawn. People can take the revelation of God, however it's given, and the creation and the conscience within, whether it's the Ten Commandments that God wrote in your heart or the Ten Commandments He wrote on tablets of stone and on paper. When you take revelation and you suppress it, 
then God stops new revelation. And so these people are not being drawn because they are unbroken, non-repentant. And so there's this divine human process that takes place. God is the initiator. No one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him because we're dead in our false steps, our trespasses and our shortcomings, our sins. And so no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. So it initiates with the Lord, but man must respond and God has given you a free will. And so the point the Lord wants to make is very simple. You've not responded because the Father is not drawing you. And now they'll say that they know God and Jesus will say, you don't know God. In fact, the only father you know is your father, the devil. He's going to say in the eighth chapter, you talk about pointed preaching. And so to authenticate his statement, he quotes the scripture. He goes back to their scriptures. Look at verse 45. It is written in the prophets and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. The ones who are taught of God are those who hear and those who learn. It is through the word of God, through the truth of God, that God draws the sinner to himself. And so scripture after scripture in the Old Testament teaches this very principle. Now he quotes one scripture, Isaiah 54, 13, and all your sons will be taught of the Lord. But it's not restricted to this scripture. You might want to circle the letter S at the end of the word prophet. What Isaiah said is representative of what the Old Testament prophets over and over and over again said. For instance, in Jeremiah 31, God said, This is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. The Old Testament prophets predicted a second birth, a new birth. We call it the new covenant. People in the Old Testament were not born again. They had a relationship with the Spirit, but it was not the kind of relationship that New Covenant believers had. It was not until Jesus Christ, in time and space, died and paid the debt for our sin, so that when you come by faith in Him, He can declare you righteous or holy, that the Holy Spirit can come and dwell on the inside. So Ezekiel, in like mind, will say, God will take your heart of stone, and He will give you a heart of flesh. No one will have to go around teaching you that uh, you need a personal relationship with the Lord because you already have one. Joel the prophet, similar, will say, the Spirit is coming and He's going to pour Himself upon all flesh, upon all peoples. And so prophet after prophet after prophet in the Old Testament said collectively, and they shall all be taught of God. Who? Those who heard and learned my word. And so the Lord wants you to understand that the manner by which God the Father draws a sinner to Himself is through the word. You have to hear the word. No one here, no one in this room, no one in this world has ever become a Christian at any point in human history apart from the word of God. Now, understand there was a time in human history when the first book of the Bible was not penned. And so God's word came in various forms and manners. But no one has ever become a Christian apart from the word of God. Jesus has been hammering this truth and he's going to unfold it even further. Look at John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word 
and believes him who sent me has eternal life. There's a hearing of the word of God. You hear, you learn, and when you respond properly, you can come to the Father. Remember what Peter said in 1 Peter 1.23? He said, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. You believe that? Do you believe that the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to bring about conversion? Now, I know you do if you're a Christian in your mind, but in practice, do you believe it? You see, the degree to which you believe that is the degree to which you're going to use God's Word in trying to win people to Christ. Oh, people say, I shared my testimony. Wonderful, your testimony has no authority. How is it any different from the Mormon who said, Oh, God gave me this warm feeling in my bosom, and so I know it's true. Your testimony means schmatz. Now, God can potentially use your testimony as a platform in which to share the gospel, but no one is saved by your testimony. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God as a living sword, as a living active uh, word to bring about conversion in the heart. He'll say to some other people after he uh, dealt with the paralytic, he says, and you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe him who is sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them they have, you have eternal life. But it's these that bear witness of me. Oh, they wanted to see something. Jesus said you have to hear something. You have to learn something. Now understand the Bible is not like a magic wand. You just say it and people drop on their knees and they're saved. Because you have to do something with that word. James will write, in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Jesus told the parable, a man went out and he sowed seed. And he said, as he explained the parable, the seed is the word of God. They all heard the same message. The problem is it fell on different kinds of hearts. Some that were one set that was responsive, the other three that were not. And so it's the word, as he will say later on, the words that I have spoken to you back in verse 63 that are spirit and our life. It is God's word that he uses as the instrument to draw you to himself. And just so that no one misunderstands this, notice what he says. When he says, when a man is, hears the, the word and he's taught by God, he wants people to know explicitly it's not some mystical, weird experience where God appears to you and he says, okay, Carl, let me tell you what I'm about. Look at verse 46. Not that any man has seen the Father, except the one who is from God, he has seen the Father. Now, this verse is not some obscure statement totally disconnected from what he's just said. Don't miss the connection between the previous verse, because when you see it, it's really profound. He is making it quite explicitly clear that no one has some direct, personal, mystical knowledge of God apart from the revelation that has been given through God's Word. He has just said, he says, listen, um, the one who is from God, he has seen the Father. He is the one who has seen the Father. Why? Because he's from God. Um, a teenager asked me recently, you use this word incarnation. What does it mean? Remember, those of us who've been saved longer, sometimes we use terms and we don't explain. And you can't assume anything, especially in this day. Most people are reading the Bible when they come to a church like this for the very first time in their lives. Incarnation is actually not a Bible word. It's a theological word, but it's a Bible truth. It comes from a Latin word that literally means in flesh. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, the incarnation. And so the Lord Jesus, because he existed before he 
took on human flesh because he came from heaven, he can say, I saw the Father. Now think about that for just a second, especially as it relates to these cults that pop out from time to time. The Reverend Sun Young Moon, the founder of the Moonies, said that he had a vision of God. He saw God, and God instructed him to finish establishing his kingdom on the earth. Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, said he had two visions of God and later an angel of God who told him through these experiences not to join a denominational church, but to translate the Book of Mormon that would be written on golden plates buried near his home. Ellen G. White, the founder of Seventh-day Adventism, she said that she saw God, and when she saw God, God gave her the sanctuary message, an event that supposedly took place in the heavens in the 1800s, and God showed her this, and, and he gave her all these other revelations that she has put down weird doctrines that you find today in Seventh-day Adventism. Charles Taz Russell the founder of the Jehovah's Witness. He said that he saw God and God showed him a pyramid and that as he measured the base of the pyramid, he could calculate when Jesus Christ would come back again from heaven. But our Lord's words are very clear. No one has seen God at any time except the Son who is from God. So you have to decide. Are you going to believe these leaders who say they saw God or are you going to believe the one who alone saw God? Now other people saw uh, the glory of God like Moses and so forth. But no one has seen God but the Son. And I'm going with the Son because He fulfilled all 333 prophecies of the Old Testament and He rose from the dead. But His position is very, very clear. And so in light of that, He says this, Truly, truly, verily, verily, when the Lord uses those words, amen, amen, literally, He is he's saying, I want you to catch this. Don't miss it. Truly, truly, I say to you, He who believes has eternal life. And you can see those folks just shaking their heads. They knew the village he was from. They knew where he grew up. They knew his family. They knew him as a schoolboy. They knew him as a village carpenter. They knew his mother. They knew his human brothers and sisters. They knew the house that he was raised in. How is it that he can go all around the country making these extravagant claims? The question they have to ask is, how are they going to account for these miracles? I mean, how do they account for the fact that the blind can see, the deaf can hear, the dumb can speak, the paralyzed can walk? How do they account for it? Well, some of them are going to say, well, the devil did it. The devil did it through him. He's nuts and he's demon-possessed. The problem with these leaders is that they identified Jesus with Nazareth instead of from Bethlehem. They said, yeah, he's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Had they just examined the prophecies and taken a little bit of time, they would have said, no, he's Jesus of Bethlehem, really, born in Bethlehem, and he's not the son of Joseph, he's the son of God. But have you ever noticed that people who know everything really don't know anything at all? But their false assessment of him makes them no less accountable. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. What is he saying? Well, another implicit, another direct invitation to come to him in faith, but also an implicit warning that if you don't come, you won't have life. Eternal life is given only to those who believe. The corollary is eternal death. 
for those who don't believe. Eternal life, Jesus said, is knowing God. And so would you circle there the tense of the verb, has, H-A-S, not will have, but has, right now, this moment, because eternal life is a friendship with God. Your sin is forgiven. Righteousness is credited to your account, and the Spirit of God is put in you. So he takes that heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh, and God becomes real. It's the birth from above that Jesus spoke of. And that's why you can know God and have this friendship today. Now think with me again. There are those who say you can lose your salvation. If I have eternal life, how long does it last? Forever. How can you lose something that's eternal? That's an oxymoron. You cannot. And so there's the reaction. There's the rebuke. Finally, we come to the reaffirmation. Jesus says a second time here in verse 48, I am the bread of life. He restates the original theme. Having answered them and rebuked them, he goes right back to what he originally introduced. I am the bread of life. By the way, the Lord Jesus is the greatest soul winner who ever lived. I've learned more about soul winning from studying the life of Jesus Christ than any course I've ever taken. Just to see how he interacts with people. And so when I teach a course in evangelism, I try to teach the methodology that the Lord himself used. It's very easy when you're sharing your faith to run down these rabbit trails that go absolutely nowhere that are not salvation issues. He always brought it back to the main point. And so he brings it back to himself. I am the bread of life. He says in verse 48, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. So he describes himself as living bread, as the bread of life, different from the manna that Moses supplied in his day. He was claiming to be even greater. The bread which fell from heaven in Moses' day, they ate it, but those folks still died. But the bread that he gives, people will never die. Now, I may roll over someday, and you may bury me in the grave, but the real me will live forever, and someday God will give me a resurrected body. They ate that manna daily. They eventually died. But when you receive Jesus Christ, you will not die. You will live forever. And so he's going to draw a comparison and a contrast, and we'll see more of it next time, between the manna that God gave in Moses' day and the living bread that has come down from heaven. Now, when God gave the manna, he gave only a gift. But when Jesus came... He gave himself. Think this through. You know Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. God proved, he demonstrated, he showed how much he loved us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died instead of us. He died in place of us. He died for us. Now, you might ask the question, how is God the Father giving the Son a demonstration of his love? I remember hearing... Uh, Phil Donahue, years ago, he had Jerry Falwell on his show, and he said, ah, that's no demonstration of love. If I took my son and nailed him to a cross, how does that prove that I love anyone? Well, it doesn't. Unless, unless God the Father and God the Son are so inseparable, equal in person, if there's one God manifest in three persons, then when the Father gave His Son, He gave of Himself. And that is the message of the Bible. 
These cults who deny the deity of the Lord Jesus, they can in no way, shape, or form say that the giving of the Son is a demonstration of the Father's love unless God the Son is absolutely equal and inseparable with the Father. And so when he gave the manna, he gave a gift. But when he gave the Lord Jesus, he gave himself. There was no cost to God in sending the manna every day. But it cost God everything when he gave his son. Oh, they had to eat it every day. But the sinner, as we will see next time, who just once eats of his body and drinks of his blood, will instantly forever have new life. Now, the manna is used in the Bible as a type. Tupos is the Greek word. We get our word type. The word type is an image, a foreshadowing, an illustration of a spiritual reality. And so manna in Scripture is a picture of the Lord Jesus. The manna came down at night, in the dark of the night. The children of Israel go to bed. They wake up in the morning. There it was every day, all over the ground. The Lord Jesus came during spiritual darkness. Oh, the manna of the Old Testament was small. It really pictured the humility of Christ. It was round, picturing his eternality. It was white, picturing his purity. It was flavored with oil, picturing his anointing. The psalmist said it was sweet to the taste, picturing what those experience who partake of him. Now, the manna met the needs of the people, and even so, the Lord Jesus will meet the deepest needs of your life. It was given to a rebellious people as Christ was given to us. The sinner had to stoop up, stoop down and pick it up. Even so, you must receive the Lord Jesus. You can either take him and appropriate him for yourself, or you can walk over him and not have him. Now, what do we mean? When we say eating the body and drinking the blood, because that's what the next six or seven verses are going to hammer. He's going to make some incredible statements. Well, we're just going to crack the door and we're just going to look at verse 51. You come back next time if you've not thought this through before, because this is important. There are some people who think that at the Lord's table, the substance is changed. It's called transubstantiation. Trans meaning change, that there's a change of substance, that the elements, the wafer and the juice, are literally changed into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And for some people, that's how you take Christ into yourself. Well, that's not what these verses are teaching. Look at verse 51. Jesus said, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of the bread, of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. And so Jesus closes this part of the message by referring to his flesh, a word that he's going to use six more times as the dialogue concludes. Now, it's very important that we understand what he meant here when he referred to his flesh. When he speaks of eating, the, eating of this bread, and the bread that he gives is his flesh... He's not speaking of literally eating his flesh in that sense, or for that matter, the elements miraculously being transformed into the literal body and blood of Christ in eating in that sense. Just follow the verse. Look, if you will, uh, it says, the bread that I shall give. Would you underline those words, shall give? It's future. He's speaking prophetically here. He's looking ahead to the fact that he is going to die a voluntary, substitutionary death. Chapter 10, he will say, no one takes my life away from me. I give it. It is a voluntary death. I am going to give my life 
and he is going to show that and prove that in John 18, that he could have ended the crucifixion ever before it started. And he will give it for the life of the world. Do you see that? I'm going to give it for the life of the world. It is a substitutionary death. It is a vicarious death. He died voluntarily. He died vicariously. He took your place and the punishment that your sin deserves. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program John 018. Remember that you can also support the ministry of Search the Scriptures by calling, or you can give online at searchthescriptures.org. Your generous donation plays an important role in providing biblical teaching and spreading the gospel. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to Search the Scriptures.